0: Now, let's all find the book of Jeremiah. Could we do that? The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Well, I'm aware that this is a very special event. Uh, This is the midweek service of Falls Baptist Church, a wonderful congregation whose fellowship we enjoy and uh, their progression of growth down the revival road we have all shared uh, through the Victory and Holiness conferences. So, this is a very special midweek service as so many guests are here. Now, um, Uh, I could say so much. And I would get on a rabbit trail about the blessings I have received and the people I'm uh, running into. Uh, But maybe I'll just comment that I'm a little concerned that this year's Holiness Conference may be a bit imbalanced uh, with uh, an increasing domination of Michigan speakers. Now, I've lived in Michigan since 1971, so I suppose you would call me a Michigander. My pastor, R.B. Willette is gonna be uh, preaching here tomorrow. Gary Hearth, who is a genuine uh, Michigander from Ann Arbor, and that is uh, designated Michigan territory down there. And then also, did you know Jim Shetler's from Michigan? So a real domination. I was thinking uh, this week uh, about as we look forward to being with the family of God in heaven, made of every tongue. Well, we've had uh, the Michigan tongue. Now, I am not really from Michigan, but when I moved there, I found that people from Michigan think it's a pure language. They will deny having any accent at all. They have no accent. So the pure language or accent or language or tongue of Michigan then we had the Irish tongue and then we had the Georgia tongue so we've had uh, quite a few tongues here this week and uh, that's been interesting think of all those things and that's my attempt at a little bit of levity just before something real serious we're turning to Jeremiah chapter 15 chapter 15 and we'll start reading at verse 15 Jeremiah the prophet is speaking. I will point out the fact that Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, like about half or more than half of the books in the Old Testament, is a series of sermons. That's what we have there is sermons. And messages from the Lord through the prophet to us, the prophet Jeremiah. But in many ways, the book of Jeremiah is biographical. And we're reading the story of a man. And he is now speaking to the Lord in verse 15. O Lord, thou knowest. Remember me, and visit me, and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar, and as waters that fail? Therefore, thus saith the Lord. If thou, now remember in the King James Bible, thou is a second person pronoun, singular. God is talking directly to the prophet Jeremiah. If thou return, then will I bring thee again. And thou shalt stand before me, and if thou wilt take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, For I am with thee to save thee and deliver thee, saith the Lord. Now reading the book of Jeremiah, which we should all do, I think you know that Jesus Christ himself was compared to the weeping prophet Jeremiah. Reading the biographical aspect of the book of Jeremiah, we learn rather quickly that Jeremiah had a a rough road to travel. He was called to be a preacher when he was just a young man. And God came to him, said, I have I formed you in the womb. I called you to be a prophet from your mother's womb. And he says, you will go forth and you'll speak my word. And he objected. He said, I'm but a child. I am so young. And you know that God does everything right. We know That the reason God called Jeremiah to be a preacher from a very young age, maybe he was a teenager, I don't know, maybe even younger, was because he had such a long ministry that he had to start young. But he begins very young and carries the yoke, the burden of a prophet of God with so many other burdens from a very early age. And he objects and he says, I'm too young. But then, God, you read the first chapter, so many precious words. He says, I will be with you. And he says, I'll put my words in your mouth. And you will root out and pull down and build up kingdoms. That will be your life. Now, as you're reading the early chapters, you find that this prophet becomes deeply and personally involved with the controversy between God and his people. There are passages, as you pay close attention, where he will say something where you don't know if it's the prophet talking or the Lord. What I mean is this. He'll talk about the daughter of my people. And if you're paying attention and pause, you'll go, is that Jeremiah talking to, the, to God? about the daughter of his people, the people of Judah? Or is it God talking through him about the daughter of his people, which, of course, Judah was? And his people were wayward. In the early chapters, you can see God showing young Jeremiah just how wayward and wicked they were. And I'm sure it came as a shocking and distressing revelation. In one of the chapters, I read that Jeremiah was sent to the great men. I'm talking about scribes and teachers and leaders. Men, undoubtedly, he had been brought up to respect. And he found them not to be what good men ought to be. And I can see him taken down this road and inwardly. Suffering, And he was directed to preach, from the earliest of his ministry, hard sermons, rebuking the whole nation for their sins, including terrifying prophecies. Read Jeremiah again. I'm talking about a young man standing up, sometimes on a street corner, making terrifying predictions about how God would bring his nation down. And he was persecuted. Look at verse 10 again. Or you haven't looked at verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me His hometown, the priestly town of Anathoth, in one of the chapters, the city father says, don't preach anymore. Stop preaching. At one point, he is put in stocks. Some of you remember the stories. There are hearings as to what to do with this man. Shall he be put to death or not? And then multiple imprisonments. Many of us have heard the story about him being dropped in that hole that was called a dungeon, nearly drowning in the mire. This was Jeremiah's life. This was the rough road he was to travel. He always voiced a minority opinion. Look at verse 17. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. The prophets were all saying, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. The enemies will turn back. Egypt will protect us. And Jeremiah alone would say, no. We're doomed because of our sins. And I'll tell you, the ministerial association... Did not treat him very well. A lonely voice for many years. And he was told never to marry. Lonely in a deeper sense no wife, no companion, no human life partner, no family. That was his life he was misunderstood. I think this probably cut him to the heart. And that's the chapter where they took his prophecy, which was straight from God, where he said, no, the will of God is that this nation collapse because of the sins of Manasseh several years ago. And the enemy will come and those who surrender to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are going to be fine. Those who resist it are going to suffer. And so they accused him of treason a profoundly patriotic young man man who loved his nation, who were God's people. And they locked him up for being a traitor. And they said, we caught him running to the enemy lines when he was doing no such thing. And sometimes he was troubled about God. Verse 18, why is my pain in perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed, wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar? In other words, are your promises going to fail me? Lord, the word is hard to come off across my lips, but are you a liar? Did you lie to me? That is, waters that fail. Look at chapter 20. Come on, just a couple of pages. He had times when he was very troubled about God, verse 7 of chapter 20. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then said I, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. And I'm going to tell you, the Lord Let Jeremiah live a tough, rough, bumpy life. And he ended up in captivity to the Babylonians. Then he was forced to escape the Babylonians. He warned them not to do it. He said, stay right here in Palestine. And he was taken by escapees down in exile to Egypt. And that's where he died. We don't know where he's buried. Matter of fact, you know what? I wonder, now I don't really wonder, but one of the strong evidences that our Bible is a divine book is that the book of Jeremiah even got in the Bible. Now, I don't know what you think about the Bible, but I may be talking to skeptics here who think that the books of the Bible were written by establishment people, priests, kings. They got their book included in the Bible. How did Jeremiah get in there? He was never establishment. He was never accepted. He was never on the right side. And he died in Egypt. How did they even find the book? It's by divine providence that's how. He ended his life in captivity and exile. And he asks, why? Verse 18. Then in verse 19... The Lord says, if thou return, then I will bring thee again. Those are words that have to do with revival. And thou shalt stand before me. And if thou, and if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. And you know what his life was about? It was about revival for the revivalist. God was working revival in Jeremiah while he was working revival or working for revival through Jeremiah, which I want to tell you something, is what God is doing with me and you right now. Dear Lord, let me be your mouth. And Lord, the most important thing tonight is that you speak to your children. And Lord, give us And understanding what you're doing in our life, help us to cooperate with you. That's our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I will seek to explain what the Lord has shown me here by making several points that I think can easily be proven from Jeremiah chapter 15. Number one, God is working in the lives of those he is using. God is working in the lives of those he is using. Now sometimes we can think that if we climb up to the top of the heap, get on higher ground, and finally be used of God, we'll be free and clear because that means we've arrived. When all along, even while God's hand is on us, he is working out imperfections and showing us things and making us more Christ-like. That's clear. Some years ago when I was a pastor, you know, Michigan isn't too far from Canada. I've got Canadian friends here from Ontario, that is. And I was asked to speak at our preacher's meeting across the bridge in Sarnia. And I remember going there largely because of the sermon I was to deliver. And the Lord just showed me from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that I was supposed to preach on troubled on every side. And I read the verses, some of you know them, and I got up there, and here I was looking at these men, I was quite a bit younger then, and I said, men, you know, I've had trouble in the ministry, I've had some times of conflict in the church, some hard times, I sure have and so have you. And my message tonight is this, it ain't going to quit. It isn't that you're going to reach a certain point where you plateau, win all your battles, Now it's smooth sailing at the church. You're going to be troubled on every side the rest of your life. Isn't that good news? And I thought they'd laugh. Nobody laughed. (laughs) And I said, because, you know, a lot of our trouble is not from the devil alone. Maybe from the devil, but it is primarily from God because of what he's doing in your life. Did you know that? and I'm not just preaching to preachers, but I am preaching to preachers. I think that this week is going to be phenomenally important in the cause of Christ around the world if the preachers can have God have his way in their life during these important days. But I'm actually talking to all of us. I'm saying that God is working in the lives he is using. He is working in our life. Jeremiah The weeping prophet, the man of God, vile. God says to him, you want to know why? Why your wound seems to be incurable? I'll tell you why. If you'll take forth the precious from the vile, you'll be as my mouth. And the absence of comment makes this reader think that Jeremiah knew exactly what God meant by vile. Did you know that the writers of the Bible, although holy men of God, were imperfect? Did you know God was working on them too, sometimes through these trials? Isaiah, it was chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, And recognized him as the king. Recognized him as holy. 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 And he says, Woe is me! For I am undone! For I am a man of unclean lips! And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's chapter 6. This man comes clean and is purged. It says, Here am my Lord, send me, in chapter 6. Which means he was preaching in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he was used of God, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and had a phenomenal transforming experience finally in chapter 6 when the king died. You know why? As God was using him, he was working on him. Maybe you know this. Did you know the woe is me in chapter 6 is the seventh woe? In chapter 5, uh, Isaiah is called by the Lord to rebuke the people for their sins. And he says, woe unto them. Woe unto them. Woe unto them that put good for evil and evil for good. Woe unto them. Woe unto them. Read chapter 5. Woe unto them God has enlarged hell for you. Then in chapter 6 it's woe is me. When he sees God for who he is and sees himself for who he is. The apostles of Jesus Christ. I tried to point out the other day that there was a remarkable change when the Holy Spirit came. They were disciples. Disciple looks like the word discipline. By discipline, they were trying to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they failed miserably until the Holy Spirit came. And we find these famous men, the disciples, apostles, now succeeding in so many ways where they had failed. But they were still growing. Simon Peter, used of God on the day of Pentecost, a spirit-filled leader in Jerusalem, is up on the housetop. Talking to God, he falls into a trance and he sees a vision. And God says, kill and eat. He sees animals clean and unclean. God says, kill and eat. He says, not so, Lord. That's a problematic phrase. Lord, not so, Lord. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? He said, I'm a Jew. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. God said, what I have cleansed, call not thou common. Sees the vision three times, goes downstairs, and finds out that there are messengers from a Gentile army captain, and he gets the message. God loves the Gentiles too. He should have got the message before because before the Lord Jesus went back to heaven, he says, Repentance and remission of sins shall be preached in my name among all nations Jew, Gentile, red, and yellow. Black and white, they are precious in his sight, but they couldn't get it until Simon Peter grew that day. God's working in your life, even if God's using you. God's working like Paul. Chapter 13, he's active in the church at Antioch. God calls him and Pastor Barnabas to be the first missionaries. We read in chapter 13 that they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost That Saul, who is also called Paul, it says in the verse, full of the Holy Ghost or filled with the Holy Ghost, his use of God to win a deputy, the deputy of Cyprus, to Jesus Christ. Then at the end of the chapter, the Bible says about them that they were full of joy and of the Holy Ghost. You know what that's saying? The Holy Ghost was not just working through them. He was working in them. They were persecuted, but they found in the Holy Ghost, all they needed emotionally, and they walked away from persecution full of joy. Now, you know what? There are two wonderful projects going on in my life and yours, and that is what God is doing through me and what God is doing in me. We are used, but we're growing. Read biographies. You'll see them all over those tables. Biographies. Men of God. They didn't have an easy road. They didn't go for months without being convicted about some wrong part of their life. They didn't automatically know faith. They had to learn faith. Even when we called them men of faith. They had to learn to pray. They had to face hardship. All of them did so that they may become Christ-like and see the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, if you'll let them, God will write your biography. And it'll include, not only the way he wants to use you, but the work he is actually doing in you. And if you'll take forth the precious from the vile, it'll happen. Number two, we learn there are things in life better than comfort. Jeremiah didn't have a lot of comfort. But God brings forward what's really important when he says, Why? Why is my pain perpetual? Will this pain ever stop? Why is this wound incurable? Why? God brings him back to some wonderful things that are more valuable than being comfortable or being fed or being popular or being free or being well. There are things much better than comfort. Like what? Look at verse 16. Thy words were found. And I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. we sang dwelling in Bula land. That's about the spirit-filled Christian life. One of the great heresies of the churches is to make that song about heaven. Because it absolutely is not. And one of the stanzas, I should have brought the book up with me. He says about Dwelling securely in the castle of God's word. How's it go? Here am I. You don't want me to try to sing it. (laughs) Safe am I within within the castle of God's word retreating. Nothing there shall... Something. (laughs) So many people with every imaginable kind of problem have retreated to the castle of God's word and found great joy. Imprisoned in a Muslim country. But they got a piece of the Bible. Doomed to live in a communist country. But somebody got them a piece of the New Testament. Languishing in a sickbed. Maybe your deathbed. But you have God's Word, and it's sweet, and it's the joy of your heart. Some people on Wednesday night can't wait to leave the church to get home to see their favorite show. Only, I'm so far behind, I don't guess you have to do that. There are ways of recording anything in the world and watching it any time of the day. But I want to tell you something. The greatest source of pleasure on the planet is God's Word. People have come through the worst possible trials but have fed on God's word and their hearts have not just been able to bear it, they've been filled with joy. You see, there are things far better than just comfort. Verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, then I will bring thee again and thou shalt stand before me. I think of the prophet Elijah who came up to wicked king Ahab and he said, thus saith the Lord of hosts, before whom I stand. These words are speaking of a personal, intimate relationship with God, especially in prayer. You know, to have the privilege of walking right into the throne room anytime we want to and come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need is a privilege beyond the privileges of anyone in the world. The simplest child of God has that. And I'm going to tell you, that's far better than getting a better job. That's far better than moving south from the frigid north. (laughs) That's far better than having your family understand you That's far better than them finding a cure for what's in your body. It's far better. God's will and a close relationship with God. He says in verse 19, Thou shalt be as my mouth. I mean so many preachers. I'm not alone. I was sitting up there thinking about my text. And I said, Dear Lord... Help me to take the precious from the vial so that I might stand up there and be as thy mouth. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles, the mouthpiece of God, that that would even be possible. But my friends, to be used of God is the greatest pleasure that a human being can ever experience to find that when you were in a situation with someone, maybe a family member, maybe just someone in your life, someone in the church, where you opened your mouth and discovered afterwards that you said exactly the right thing. That's very similar to a preacher coming down from the pulpit, going to the back and having a church member say, I can't believe you said that pastor. Right now I'm thinking of preaching here on a Wednesday night a long time ago I was here to teach a class pastor I think was sick and asked me to preach and I you know just a couple hours ahead of time but there was a sermon I hadn't preached in years that God laid on my heart about uh contentment it's a command in Hebrews 13 be content and you know what right at the end of that sermon I quoted from Job And I had never quoted this from Job any time I had ever preached this sermon. I had never thought of it. But it fit. So I closed the sermon by just saying, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then I had his vow in prayer and closed the service. And I'm going to tell you, a few people came down here in front and told me how the sermon about being content with such things as you had had helped them, and they told me particular reasons. I remember several of them. But then there was a nice, well-dressed couple standing there waiting. And when they came up to me, and every preacher here knows what this is like, they said, Brother Flanders, the whole time you were preaching that about letting the Lord have his way, don't argue with Him." Be content with such things as we you have. We were thinking about our child. A young child had died tragically within the last year of their child. How that hurt. How they prayed. How they sought solace and comfort. We were both thinking of that. But when you quoted Job, the Lord gave and the Lord had taken away, we were stunned because that was the verse we found. That was through, and you opened your mouth and said it from the pulpit. And if there was anyone in the whole room who would know that Rick Flanders is not a mind reader, he's not clairvoyant. There was nothing special about me. The guy who knew that was me, because that was God. And you know why that happens, folks? It's because God loves you, and He tells some guy up in the pulpit to say something because he wants the message to come to you. But I'm just telling you, there are things far more valuable than comfort. Far more valuable. God reminds him. Look at verse 20. I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall. I love those verses. He says they'll fight you, but they won't prevail. You will stand as a fenced, brazen wall. Now I'm not holding my up self up in this position, but I'm saying to know that you are representing God and to stand in the boldness he gives you, and to say or do what he wants you to do, even though it's dangerous, is one of the most phenomenal experiences of life. I remember one morning we had a Christian school. You learn a lot when you pastor a church with a Christian school. But we had stuff going on and we had, well, shall I call them rebellious? Yeah, I think that's what I'll call them. And they were poison. We had young people in our, and they weren't getting demerits and they weren't getting expelled and they weren't being threatened. And I tell you, just as sure as if God had said it out loud, I knew I was supposed to walk in. I won't tell you exactly what I said, but I stood in chapel and I let them know and I looked them right in the eye because I knew who they were, that we are following Jesus Christ at Juniata Christian School. Some of you are not. And one way or another, you will either yield to him or I'm going to get you out of here because you're not going to spoil any of the kids in this school. And I know you're doing that now. And, you know, some of you folks say, well, I tell you, that probably gives a charge to you preachers. Adrenaline. Get to act like John Wayne, some tough guy. I don't know about other preachers, but I think I do. Sometimes, and in church, sometimes from the pulpit, not just the Christian school, I've had to stand up and boldly stand with him. You know what happens? Inside afterwards, I wilt. I've had more than one time where I got out of the pulpit and I thought, I can't believe I said that. And then I say, thank you, Lord. You know, there are things far more important than keeping your pastorate. There are things far more important than getting a standing O. There are things more important than keeping all your teenage friends There are things far more important than having the world wish you well. Representing God faithfully and having the sense of his presence with you cannot be described when it comes to value. And then he says at the end, for I am with thee. You know what that is? Friendship. Friendship. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. That partnership with Jesus Christ we've been talking about every day. Take my yoke upon you, abide in me. It's all the same thing, hand in hand, under the yoke with Jesus Christ, serving him. It's the greatest thing in the world if they send you to Siberia, if they flog you, if they call you every name in the book, if they slander you, I'll tell you, there's nothing as wonderful as that relationship called abide in Christ. And you know what? You can have those things if you'll take forth the precious from the vile. Number three, the servant has the responsibility to respond to his God. He says, Why, Lord? And God reveals by giving him a command. He says, Take forth the, the precious from the vial. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Jeremiah can do it. And Jeremiah could do it. The servant has a responsibility to heed. What God tells him. Did you know that people are complicated? I had it pointed out to me years ago that one lesson in the famous verse, Proverbs 3, 6, is that people are complicated. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. You know, one of the things that means is that every man, every woman has more than one way. We tend to classify people all at once as one thing. No, people are complicated. In all my ways acknowledge him because I am more than one way. Some of my ways are precious. Some of them are vile. Some of my ways have come from cooperating with God and they are the fruit of his work in my life. Some of my ways are the works of the flesh. The same guy, like David, a man after God's own heart. You know, in many ways, he's an example to us. Of course, you would agree with me. In some ways, he's not. One way is, he was a terrible father. We didn't know the name of the son that he neglected. We know the name of the son that he rejected and the consequences of that rejection. We know the name of a son that he indulged. David was not a good father. His fatherly ways were bad, but some of the other ways of David were wonderful. You know why that is? People are complicated. Paul wrote in Romans 7.18. Now, you know the verse. But this part of the verse is in parenthesis. He says, For I know that in me, parenthesis, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. You know that parenthesis means this. In me, that is in my flesh, that means there's a very, very bad part of me. But in me, there's also Christ. He's the one who said, not Christ, not I, but Christ liveth in me. People are complicated. Put off the old man. Let's call you George. Is George good or bad? Yes. And that's absolutely the truth. As a matter of fact, I heard John Van Gilbert preach, it really has affected me, from Second Corinthians chapter 5 that uh, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And did you know in me is someone who actually is the righteousness of God? He calls that the real you. And I'm going to tell you there's someone perfect in me But there's someone imperfect about me, without a doubt. The treasure in earthen vessels. That's right. I wrote an article some years ago that I sent out. And uh, anybody could read it, so I got critical response. And this article was called Two Proven Facts, Two Proven spiritual or religious facts. Here's what they are. History proves, number one, that the only way to know God is by personal faith in Jesus Christ. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, on and on. Chuck Colson, born again. The only way anyone has ever had a real relationship with God was by personal faith in Jesus Christ. The second proven religious or spiritual fact is that the only way to be effective in Christian ministry is by a definite endowment of power from on high. Read the stories. They're all there. Well, I got a letter from a critic who didn't like that at all. And he started naming to me some few revivalists, especially D.L. Moody. He said, you you think D.L. Moody was filled with the Holy Spirit? And then he started talking to me, In the letter, he started talking to me about Moody's weight. Tell me Moody was overweight. I had never heard how much he weighed being discussed before, so I couldn't argue with him. (laughs) And about a bad habit that Spurgeon had for years. You think they were spirit-filled? What I want to tell you is this. They were complicated. Some of the greatest revivalists... Had weaknesses in their theology. Wesley, Finney, and I'm a guy who thinks the Calvinists have a weakness in their theology, too. The weaknesses in a leader's theology or his polity left consequences for the revivals they led without a doubt but that doesn't mean these were not real revivals that doesn't mean the man was not spirit-filled you know what it means there was precious and there was vile and you know what that's true about you there are people here who have precious things that are public And vile things that are private. There are folks here who have obviously precious things in ministry. But vile things when it comes to family. There was the man in the Bible who said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. He was an unbelieving believer. Did he believe? Yes, he believed. But part of him didn't. The precious and the vile. And we are capable of taking the precious from the vile. Now, I'd like us to think now, what is going on in your life? Let's say we were sitting down talking one-on-one. What if you were very transparent with me, and we could have a real talk, and I asked you, what is precious in your life right now? I'm talking about what God's doing in your life. What is precious in your life right now? What would you think of? What would you say? How do we take that and encourage it? and improve it. What might it be? It might be, you might say, you know, Brother Flans, want to tell you, for two days, that's not long, but I've been abiding in Christ, never did before. I say, precious. Or you might be saying, never had any success with evangelism until last week, and it wasn't forced, one, two, three, repeat after me conversions. It was God working through me. I would say, precious. Or you might say, I finally found my gift in calling. And God's using me in this way in our local church. I'd say, precious. And I look out, Pastor Van Gilden, this year, maybe, I forget, year from year, but it seems as if I know more of these people than I usually do. And I could stand up here and tell you precious things I know that are happening in many of your lives. I was sitting up there thinking about one of you. I only met a couple of weeks ago, if that long, and your fellow church members were telling me how you were letting the Lord help you grow. You haven't known Christ very long, been recently baptized, you're following the Lord. Somebody actually came up to me and said, you know what, so-and-so in our church, he was riveted to what you were saying. And when I saw you were here for the Victory Conference, I just about flipped out. That's Greek for rejoiced. <laughs> and you know what? If you figured out who I'm talking about, did you have know been watching you? Because something precious is happening in your life. Who knows where that man will go? Praise God. But what about the vial? If we were being very frank and I said, the word is the, I, L-E. Do you have something vile in your life? I don't suspect you'd tell me what that was unless you thought I could help you. But do you know what to do about that? Yes, we do. We apply the cross. First for cleansing, then for victory. According to Romans 6, you can quit anything, you need to quit. Even if it's stubborn and says, you can't quit me. You can. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And before the victory, you can have perfect cleansing. I love the phrase of the Lord Jesus Christ as he washed their feet. He said, you're clean every whit. Not carrying around a load of guilt." If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anybody in this room can be as clean before God as I am. And I'm not holding myself up as particularly clean. But if you're listening to me preach, you're assuming I'm right with God. You can be too. Clean every whit. You know what you can do about the vial? You can forsake it. Forsake your sins. You know what that means? Let it go. You might say, I've tried to quit it. I'm not talking about that. You're going to need to trust in order to quit it. It's going to have to be Christ changing you. But at least you can let it go. Did you know Jesus Christ will not jerk your sin out of your life? You've got to let it go. Forsake it. Tell God, I don't want it anymore. It's vile. It's vile. Vile! Vile! We are perfectly capable of encouraging the precious by believing every word of God, by letting God have his way, and of dealing with the vile. Now, the precious and the vile cross in our minds. Here's the way this goes. I look at the precious... I say, dear Lord, I'm surprised you're using me, but I'm going to pray again. Even me, even me, let thy blessing fall on me. When you come to appreciate the precious and the potential of what God's doing in your life, you run right into the vial every time. And you either do this, You either listen to the devil and say, well, I might as well forget about the precious. (laughs) I've still got the vial. Or you say, I have this precious. God spoke to me this morning. He's still talking to me. I felt good when I came to the altar. Well, it must be that the vial doesn't matter. That God's comfortable with me keeping the vial in my life. Well, he does. Neither one of those are correct conclusions, and they both come from the father of lies. But you know what you should do? Take the precious from the vile. And say, dear Lord, you're doing wonderful things in my life, and you want to do great things through my life. And that's what I want, too. And I don't want the Rick Flanders of the vile. I don't want the villainous, weak, anti-God, me. I want the new creature. And so tonight, I'm going to deal with the vile and believe you for the precious. And let you do all those things you told Jeremiah you would do. Can I read it again? Therefore thus saith the Lord, if thou return, then I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them, and I will make thee unto this people a fence, brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and deliver thee, saith the Lord. Let's bow our heads right now, can we? The prophet obviously knew what the Lord meant when he said, take forth the precious from the vial. He knew what the precious was and he knew what the vial was And he realized he was capable of taking the precious from the vial. They did not have to coexist. Now the Lord has been speaking to us. He's been speaking to you. And you know what this means. Take forth the precious from the vial. And I'll start using you. And we'll be friends and partners. And I will be with you. And my hand will be on your life. That's what he says. Will you decide to do that very thing? Who would say to me, Brother Flanders, I'm going to take the precious from the vial. I know the precious and the vial. But I'm going to take the precious from the vial and expect God to put his hand on me. If that's you, raise your hand. take it down. Oh, God, thank you for gracing us with your voice and your presence and for making all of this personal. Now, Lord, hear us when we pray. Oh, Lord, as we forsake the vile and as we believe you for the precious, may there be phenomenal changes for us, especially in our relationship to you, we pray.